The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. It says this To the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemies will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here together as a church body to hear your word preached, taught, prayed, sung. As we think about all of these things together as a church body, we pray that you would give us correction, that you would give us insight, that you would give us wisdom, that you would pour on us your grace and your mercy so that we might understand more of who you are, that we might apply your word to our life and we may live different, having encountered you through your word, we pray. So would you give us insight into your word this morning? Would you give us help as we seek to understand and apply in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, we are transitioning uh, from 2 Samuel into the book of Psalms for the next 10 Sundays um, as we you know, consider our, our summer series, as it were, uh, 10 Psalms. We've been doing this for the last, this is, I guess, the fifth decade now that we've, our fifth, fifth, uh, <laughs> this is not the, not the fifth decade, the fifth year of 10 Psalms. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, we'll go from Psalm 41 to Psalm 50. And I would thought about, you know, doing like the armor of God or something like that uh, to match our background, but um, but we'll, we'll stick with the Psalms. It won't be that big of a transition, having gone from 2 Samuel now into a psalm written by David. You'll, you'll kind of sense the transition, and, and I, I think uh, there will be a lot of themes that carry throughout 
uh, from 2 Samuel to the book of Psalms. And I think you'll, you'll kind of sense that there's, it, it's not necessarily more of the same, but maybe we get uh, a different perspective on some of the same things that we've taught, uh, that I've taught from the beginning of First and Second Samuel. Uh, I, I think when we read the Bible and, and when we encounter others and we, we have relationships, we build relationships, we all like to be the recipients of grace and mercy. I think we all, for one reason or another, want to be sure that you cut us some slack. I want you to understand where I'm coming from and I, I want you to give me a little bit of grace and mercy. I think that's how the, the general way we operate. We want forgiveness when we've sinned. We want generosity when we are in financial need. I think we want kindness when we're having a bad day. We, we, we look through the world through our eyes. It's the only eyes we can look at the world through. And, and we hope other people can see things from our perspective. And we want you to cut us some slack. But you know, it's much harder going the other way. It's much harder to give to extend mercy and grace to other people. It's much harder to see things from their perspective. It's much harder to cut them some slack. It's much harder to tolerate their sins against you or, or to really just radically forgive their sins against you, to extend un, unconditional forgiveness when we're sinned against. It's much harder to give generously when we feel like the ones we're giving to don't deserve the gift. It's much harder to give grace and mercy and extend kindness to those who are having bad days because we think to ourselves, everybody has bad days. Get over it. I got over it. You can get over it too. It's much harder when the shoe's on the other foot, to extend grace and mercy to other people. But certainly, when we're the ones wronged, or when we're the ones that have sinned, or when we're the ones in the wrong, we want grace and mercy extended to us. In Psalm 41, this is the final psalm in the first book of Psalms. So if you're going through Psalms and you begin with Psalm 1 and you read all the way through Psalm 150, you'll see that the book of Psalms, this, this sort of ancient hymnal as it were, is divided into five different books along the way. And each of the books contains Psalms that are somewhat at least unified in a message. At the beginning, they're more often written by David. As it gets toward the end, they're less often written by David and more often written by other people. But they're also unified in a very similar message. One commentator summarizes book one of the book of Psalms like this. The life of faith, then, is a struggle to come to grips with God's goodness in suffering and hope, in lament and in Him, in candor and in gratitude. What one finds in book one of the Psalter, then, is the initial stage of that struggle-filled journey from obedience to praise. This initial stage of the journey, filled as it is with songs of lament, that is, prayers for help, 
focuses mainly on candor, on stating as clearly as possible the challenge that life in God's creation and life in God's community are not filled with unambiguous experiences of God's grace. Rather, there is more than a little suffering in God's world and among God's people. I think we can all relate to that to some degree. And you've noticed, maybe if you think back on the many years of psalms that we've been doing this over the summer, you can hear some of the, the honesty in David's words as he expresses what life is really like. Look, his life is not just filled with a, a, an overabundance of God's grace where you're just kind of overwhelmed at all times with the amount of goodness that he's bestowing on you. In fact, it's hard sometimes. Psalms is raw when it comes to the emotion that is felt by being a child of God. You're struggling in this kind of dual reality where you understand that you have been bought with a price and that you're God's child, but at the same time, there is a world that is filled with animosity and struggle and strife and tears and pain. And it's hard. And Psalms is not ambiguous about that. It's very open about that. That it is filled with suffering in God's world. But, but also, more than merely being about us and about our suffering in this life, there's also some other things that we can see in this first book. One is that the main purpose of book one is about the establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through His anointed King, which is originally David, but as we will continue to see, is ultimately Jesus. Let me say that again. The main purpose of book one is about the establishment of God's kingdom, how God is reigning over the world through His anointed King, which is originally David, but ultimately Jesus. This is part of what makes Psalms so compelling is that it is raw, emotionally raw. It, ex it lays out everything. There's psalms of lament and psalms of agony and psalms of a desire for someone to get theirs. And all the same emotions that we feel on a daily basis are, are demonstrated here in the book of Psalms. And yet what is clear is that God has set David on the throne and as we saw just a few weeks ago in 2 Samuel, he's made a promise to David. He made a promise even to Adam and Eve as far back as the first pages of Genesis that he was one day going to bring all of this to a conclusion. This was all going to be brought to an end. We see all the way in Revelation where Christ is ultimately on the throne and he wipes away every tear from every eye. So all of the things that are exposed in book one and all the raw emotion that we feel about the life that we now live we also know God, in establishing His King David on the throne, is bringing about the conclusion which will ultimately be in Jesus. So as we've seen, and we've been seeing in First and Second Samuel, David is not only God's anointed king, but he's the beginning of God establishing His kingdom on the earth. So what we're seeing with David, if you can just grasp this, with your mind here, is what we're seeing with David is really how God's kingdom works. So as, as God establishes David on the throne, he's setting the rules 
for how the world is going to be governed through His King. He's establishing the parameters with God's King at the helm. This is how it's going to work. So He's revealing what He's going to be doing with humanity. Now we see it imperfectly come about with some of the early kings, and and especially not only David, but all of the kings leading up to Christ until Christ gets on the scene. But what we see initially there with David, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, what does he have? He has peace on all sides when God puts him on the throne. So we, we know that God's desire for humanity is to have His King on the throne and for His people to be at peace from all enemies. We know that that's a fundamental premise of God's kingdom, and He's going to bring that about. And it's going to be a slow evolution, but it's eventually going to lead to Jesus. So ultimately, what we're seeing in these psalms is that they they ultimately point us to Jesus. And now, I say that a lot, and and sometimes I I get a chance to unpack it, but what I mean by that is that the psalms, or really the Old Testament in, in any passage, it points us to Jesus. When I say that, what I mean is that when we read the passage rightly, we'll see at least two things, and this is particular to the psalms as well we'll see that Jesus, one, embodies the psalm. So when I say the psalms point us to Jesus, I mean that Jesus first embodies the psalm. And what that means is we'll see on occasion in Jesus' life and ministry where this psalm is directly applied to Him. Meaning events that David is describing, things that David described taking place, actually happen in Jesus' life. Where the psalm can be applied perfectly, where it's lived out and obeyed perfectly, where the psalm makes a command of what we should do and how we should be, we're going to see that psalm lived out perfectly in the life of Jesus. Second, that Jesus then also provides the psalm's blessing to us. So when we say the psalm points us to Jesus, we mean first that Jesus embodies the psalm, meaning He lives it out perfectly, and we can see that manifest in His life. But then second, Jesus, uh, the psalm points to Jesus in that all of the blessings that are contained in the psalm come to us by, by the work that Jesus did for us, because of what Jesus has done for us. In other words, He provides the blessings of the psalm to us. That's what we mean when the psalm points to Jesus. Because of the work that He did on the cross, we can trust that these promises will also become true to us in due time. Does that make sense? In this psalm, David is hanging his hat on a promise that God makes to him, that he knows is true, that, that is for his good. And he thinks that in this, that, that by virtue of God's promise, all of these things will actually work out for His good. So within this psalm, we're going to see, one, the promise of God. We're going to see, two, why it's for our good and for David's good. And three, how we know that this promise is actually ours. That we can hold on to this promise and we can trust in this promise. So we're going to see, the pro- first of all, the promise of God. Two, why it's for our good. And three, how we know this promise is ours. First, the promise of God is that the helper of the weak is blessed. 
The helper of the weak is blessed. The first three verses of Psalm 41, you'll notice there, is a beatitude. Beatitude means an explanation of blessing. So David is going to explain how he's blessed in God's kingdom. And, and he says the one who is blessed in God's kingdom is the one who considers the poor. You see that there in verse 1. The one who considers the poor. But you probably have a note in your Bible next to the word poor, which tells you if you follow it down to the bottom of the page, that that word could also be translated weak or helpless. And I think either of those translations, weak or helpless, probably make a little bit more sense than the word poor there, mainly because weak and helpless includes the poor, but also includes a whole host of other people that I think are intended by this passage. Because David is going to see himself as the beneficiary of this promise. And, and because he sees himself as the beneficiary of this promise, we know that David is not financially poor. That's not what he means. He is weak, or he is helpless in this psalm, and he's hoping that he is the beneficiary of this promise. So I think it, it would be better if we think of this term in the sense of weak or helpless, because it includes a whole host of people. Certainly the poor are in there, but also more than just that. It could be everyone from the unborn child in the womb of the mother who needs protection, and the one who protects that unborn child in the womb is blessed by God, all the way to persecuted brothers and sisters who are at the tip of the spear of the governmental overreach and power. It could be everything from a family member who is needing some kind of financial help, or perhaps a family member who is needing a room to stay in or shelter of some kind. Or it could extend all the way to a friend who needs your forgiveness. It, and it could be everyone in between. This is a very a general sense of those who are needing help, who are considered in this passage poor or weak or helpless. So fundamentally, this psalm at its root is really about showing grace and mercy to those who are in need of grace and mercy. It's about extending your grace and your mercy and your help to those who are in need of it. So the beatitude that David gives us is there in verses 1 to 3. Let's look at it. He says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. You understand that if, you, if you're looking at the pronouns, the way they're used here, it can be a little bit misleading at first if you're not thinking about it right. This is a promise not to the weak or the poor person like we might expect would be there. It's a promise to the person who defended the helpless person. That when they are in a position 
of weakness or of poverty or of helplessness. The promise is that the Lord will always help those who help the helpless. Does that make sense? The Lord is promising that He will help those who help the helpless. And He doesn't just uh, mean those who... Uh, help in terms of who consider. He says consider the poor. He doesn't just mean those who, who think about ways to help or, or, or pray about those who, uh, uh, who are, are helpless, but don't actually provide some tangible means of help. He means those who actually get down in the dirt with those who are helpless or are in need and actually extend to them some tangible means of help. Now, he also doesn't mean, on the other end, someone who just sprays cash out, in the, out, out into the ether and hopes that it will bless somebody, as if money will fix all problems. That's not, all, that's not what he means. He means actual, tangible help. In some cases, that's money. In some cases, that's much deeper than just money can simply afford. The idea is that this person actually thinks about not only ways to help, but actually puts into practice wise approaches to solve really deeply entrenched problems that are going on in the life of the person. More importantly, his life, if you just look at the person's life, it's governed by uh, by generosity. It's governed by mercy. It's governed by grace. In other words, when you look at this person, People would generally describe this person as a gracious person, a merciful person, someone who is characterized by their generosity. Now, we have to be careful when we come to promises like these, and these probably are more common in the, New Test- in the Old Testament, excuse me, when we, we come upon promises like these, they're, they're probably more, a little bit more common in the Old Testament um, because we can get confused by the way that they read and the way that they're worded. One way that we could misinterpret a, a beatitude like this is that God is a gumball machine. And, and, it, and it, it's a mechanical operation, you see. You, you take your quarter of your, your good works, your good deed. I, I put in my quarter of good deed. I turn the handle, and I should expect that God will repay me when I need it. So that quarter is simply seed money. It's an investment that, that giving someone $5 on the street or that providing a room for somebody to live in in my house, that, that is, a, is, is putting my quarter in God's gumball machine. And so, in, in turn, God is going to pay me back one day when I really need it. That's not the way Beatitudes work. And to be quite honest, you don't want them to work that way. Because here's the reality, if the beatitude worked that way, then the curses would also work that way. You want the curses to work that way? I don't want the curses to work that way. Like I said, I want grace and mercy. So when I've sinned against God, I want, I want mercy and grace. Well, I can't then turn around for the beatitude and say, well, I put my quarter in, God. Where's my room and board when I need it? Right? It doesn't quite work that way. What we should really think of Beatitudes as, is this is the kind of people that God is making you to be. If you are a child of God, if God is your God, and you consider yourself to be His people, then you should expect 
This is the kind of people He's making you to be. And this is the way God blesses His people in their obedience. So in other words, God is, he is initiating these promises. He's then supplying the promises. In other words, He's giving you the ability to work them out. And then on the back end, He's blessing you. So He hasn't designed His kingdom, in other words, so that you just give and give and give and give and give and give and that nothing ever comes back to you. That, that that's your purpose in life. If you're in God's kingdom, then, then you're only ever a giver and you're never a receiver. That's not how he's, worked, how he's made His kingdom to work. Instead, what he has, how He has designed His kingdom and really the broader world is on the principles of reaping and sowing. These are the things that I should strive for because this is who God is making me to be. He's making me to, into a gracious, a merciful, and generous person. So it sets a goal for me. In other words, if we're thinking about our life in Christ, this is what He is conforming me into. This is what Christ looks like. God wants me to be like Him, gracious and merciful and generous. And then He has arranged His kingdom in such a way so that when that happens, and when I work toward the things that He supplied in me, He then also blesses me on the back end. How do you like that? How's that for generosity? So, God has initiated these promises, He has supplied the activity, and then He supplies the blessing on the back end. So, David says this beatitude is that the helper of the weak is blessed. And this is good news, point number two, because the weak one will eventually be you. So the reason why it's good that God blesses the one who helps the weak is that one day you will be the one who is weak. See, David is banking on this because in this psalm, He's the one that's weak. And here's what we're going to see, is that David is in a position of weakness for several reasons. And he's banking on God's grace. For one, David needs grace because he's weakened by his own sin. He's weakened by his own sin. Look in verse 1. As for, or sorry, in verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Now, we're not told what sin this is in particular, but it's possible that David is lying on a sickbed, and on his sickbed, he's recalling specific sins that he has committed against the Lord, and for one reason or another, is partially convinced at least, that part of the reason why he is sick is specifically because he has sinned against the Lord, and it's leading him to confess his sin. Now, sometimes we get baffled by this, why on earth David would think that. But we see this in the New Testament, too, of people that take the Lord's Supper inappropriately without regard to their own internal sins that God has actually punished them and put them on a sickbed to remind them of those things. Now, every time you're sick, does that mean you've committed a sin to get there? No, that's not what's being said here. But what is being said is that David is, one, he is sick, and two, the Lord is bringing to mind specific sins that he has committed. 
So whether they led to his sickness or not, it's bringing him to a point of confession, and that's the point. But what's also necessary for us to see is that this model of confession is really important. Notice what David says there. O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. There's no wallowing in self-pity. You see that in there? There's no wallowing in self-pity. There's no making excuses. There's no explanations. Well, yeah, but you see, if that person wouldn't... There's none of that. There's just 100% ownership of his sin and an appeal to grace. And sometimes we as Christians can get caught in this loop of confession of sin where we sit there in the pew or maybe we're at home and we wallow in self-pity. There's no reason why the Lord should forgive me. I understand, God, I've sinned so greatly, and I understand why you're so mad at me, and I understand why you'd never want to talk to me again. And You don't see any of that with David's confession. Just as much as there is an honest confession of sin that I've committed against you, there is also a trust that God is going to be gracious to him and forgive him. And that no amount of wallowing in self-pity is going to cause God to go, well, I was really mad at you, but now I see your, your self-pity and I'm going to come to you. Now I really feel like you're, you're there. You're really sorry for your sin. That's not what God is doing. A genuine, contrite heart, he does not despise. And so David confesses his sin. He has 100% ownership. It's my fault. I did it. And an appeal to the Lord's grace, and he trusts that it's going to be there. So David is, is first, he needs God's grace because he's weakened by his own sin. But for two, David needs God's grace because he's weakened by his own mortality. Look in verse 5. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper, about, whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. David is, is older in his reign, it seems. And as he gets older and as he gets closer to death, there are people that begin vying for control when they see weakness in the king. And so we see in verse 5, his enemies want him to die. They hope that he dies. They hope that this is the end for him. We see in verse 6, his enemies are fake to him. He says, they come to me, they come to see me, so he's in the hospital or whatever, they come to see him, and they utter empty words. I really hope you get better. Let me, let me pray for you that you get up off this sick bed. And they don't really mean it. In their heart, they conjure up iniquity, and then they go and they tell abroad what they really want to happen to him. I hope he gets his in the end. We see in verse 7, his enemies actually hope for the worst in him. And finally, in verse 8, they assume that there's no way out for him. Well, he's a goner. This is surely going to be the end of him. And we're hopeful that that is the case. Now remember, when David begins this psalm, he, he's beginning clinging to a promise that the Lord takes care of the one who takes care of the weak. And so David understands himself and his kingdom to have been one that takes care of the weak. And so now he is in a position of weakness and all these people who are coming to him are doing anything but caring for him. They're all hoping for his demise. So he's clinging to this promise. 
And he's been weakened by all kinds of other things. And the people that are coming to him are not caring for this weakened person. But I'm afraid, for David, things go from bad to worse. He's not only weakened by his own sin, he's weakened by his own mortality. And finally, David needs grace because he's weakened by his closest friends. Look in verse 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. So worse than the mere enemies coming to gloat over his sickness and over the Lord's treatment of him or Lord's apparent treatment of him, worse than his enemies coming to visit him on his sickbed or wishing the worst about him, is that it seems David was betrayed by someone that he considered to be a very close friend. Someone he even says ate at his table. You took bread from my table, and yet now this is how you treat me? Uh, Now we know that not every situation in David's life is recorded in Scripture. So it's not as though we can trace every psalm to a specific event that we know about. However, it's also possible that he is referring to a very well-known part of Scripture here where something like this happened. Toward the end of David's reign, which is a part of 2 Samuel we haven't gotten to yet, so we get into chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, his son Absalom is going to betray him and attempt to overthrow David on the throne and really chase David out of town, and for a a brief moment he's going to occupy the throne. And that's hard enough to watch your own son try to take your throne. And some of that is for sins that David committed, weaknesses in David's reign that Absalom exposes, things that David should have done that he didn't do. But there's a point in the process when David flees from town where his most trusted advisor, a man by the name of Ahithophel, takes Absalom's side in the coup. Absalom takes his throne, and Ahithophel actually switches allegiances from his being David's most trusted advisor to Absalom's most trusted advisor. So it's possible that David is referring to this time right here when Ahithophel has transitioned to supporting the coup that's taken place in his kingdom, Ahithophel who has taken bread from his table. It's possible that David's referring to that time where his trusted advisor, who's eaten from his own table, betrayed him by supporting all those who were seeking to kill him. But whatever the reason was, the weakness that David is experiencing is common, I think, to all of us. Whether it's betrayal or sickness, or maybe it's a sinful condition, perhaps it's some other issues, maybe strife with someone else. At some point in our life, every single one of us is going to be brought down to what we feel like is the absolute rock bottom where there seems to be no escape and there's no getting out of it. We're going to be brought down to the lowest of lows. So the real question is this. What are those times, those lowest of the lows, those rock bottom humbling experiences in your life turning you into? That's the question. If what God is saying here in His promises is that He is making His people into gracious and merciful people who turn and help people who are at the lowest of the lows. So that when they are at the lowest of the lows, they are in turn helped. 
So then the question is, when you are at the lowest of lows, what kind of person is He making you into? And what kind of person are you becoming? Are those humbling experiences in your life turning you into a more gracious person? Are they turning you into a person who is quick to listen, who is slow to speak, who is slow to become angry? Or are they giving you a quicker fuse? Are those trials in your life causing you to look at others in their weaknesses and say, I got myself out of those trials. How come you can't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and get out of it just like I did? Are the humbling experiences in your life causing you to look at someone else with less grace, less mercy, less compassion? Or are they causing you to be more compassionate, more gracious, and more merciful toward your brothers and sisters? Are the sin struggles that you've had when you've been brought down to the lowest of lows, maybe everybody knows what those sins are. Are they causing you to look at other people's sins against you, be they friends, or be they kids, or be they neighbors? Are they causing you to look at other people's sins against you with less grace and less compassion? Or have your own bouts with sin humbled you because you realize how tricky the snares of the devil really are. And that this person who has sinned against you, whether they are sorry about it right now or not, has simply fallen prey to the snares of the devil. They need help, not judgment. They need compassion and mercy, not stinginess and frustration and anger. They need help. Has it caused you to be that kind of person or has it caused you to be angry? It can go one of two ways. Either, either one can be produced in your life. But one is the marker of those who are children of God and the other is a marker of those who are children of the devil. Which one are you? What are those trials making you into? Remember, this is not just an Old Testament concept. Now, we might look at it and go, well, this is all before Jesus, and there's this whole exchange thing that God is doing. You do this, I'll do that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. No, no, this is not an Old Testament concept. This is a New Testament concept, too. Remember, the book of James, chapter 2, verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you don't believe James, how about Jesus himself? Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So it's evident by the beatitude at the beginning of this psalm and in the rest of the Scriptures, be they Old or New Testament, that God is creating His people to be people who show mercy and then who reap mercy when they need it most. So it's really a question of what is He turning you into? Or what are your trials turning you into? Are you growing to be a more merciful, generous, loving person? Or are you growing more impatient, more tight-fisted, and more spiteful the older you get? 
So David returns to reassurance at the end of the psalm because the Lord is your protector. He knows that this is going to come true, that the Lord is going to ultimately deliver on this because the Lord is his protector. Look at verses 11 and 13, 11 to 13. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your, everla- in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So, so why does he know that his enemy will not shout in triumph over him? Because, he says, of his integrity. And I think by that, he, he means that he understands the actions of his government, the actions of his kingdom, the actions of God's kingdom, and the principles of God's kingdom, to be one that favors the weak, that cares for the weak, that cares for the one that's disenfranchised. And David has led that effort in his kingdom. He has considered the poor. He has considered the disenfranchised. And so he knows that because the promises of God are true, the Lord oversees all of this, and He will then, in the end, protect him, even if for the moment it looks like he is, he is not going to be over his enemies. He knows that in the end, his enemies will not triumph, but God will ultimately restore him and restore his name. But the question then for us is, how do we know that these promises are actually ours? How do we know that we can look at this and say, this is not just about David, this is about us as well. That these promises that God gives, that those who help the helpless will also be helped by Him. How do we know that that promise also applies to us? Well, remember at the beginning of this, I said there's two things that we've got to keep in mind when we read the Psalms. Really, any Old Testament passage, but in particular the Psalms. At first, Jesus embodies the Psalm. Meaning, the stuff that's described here, where perfect obedience is followed, Jesus does to a T. And that these events that David is describing also happen to the Son of God. Okay? So that's the first thing. We've got to remember, He embodies the Psalm. But then because of His work, He actually provides the psalm's blessing to us. So let's take them one at a time. First of all, Jesus embodies this psalm because he too was betrayed by his closest friend. In fact, one who ate bread at his table handed him over to be crucified. The very line that David writes there is ultimately embodied by Jesus. Now, Judas Iscariot is going to hand him over to be crucified. And, and before you kind of in your head go, oh, come on. Really? You're stretching here, right? This is a, a scene David is describing. Somebody ate from his bread and ate bread from his table and betrayed him. And now you're trying to apply that to Jesus. I get there's something vaguely similar to that that happened in the New Testament, but you're stretching. Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' own words in John 13, 18. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. There at the Last Supper, right before Judas goes to betray him, and he says this, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate bread has lifted his heel against me. You understand what Jesus is saying there? He cites this psalm, and he says, I'm the embodiment of this psalm. 
This might have also happened to David, but I am the perfect embodiment of this psalm. All of these things that David is describing are true of me. These things happen to me. But what is the reason that God can promise to reward those who are merciful and, and to those who extend forgiveness? Why is it that He can promise that and I can claim that? It's because Christ's atoning work on the cross. Because of the forgiveness that I have in Christ, there are two things that are guaranteed for me. And Paul lays these out in Romans 8. One of my favorite passages in Scripture. Mark it down. Memorize it if you can. Romans 8, 28 and 29. I want you to pay attention to what Paul says here is yours because of what Christ has done. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. I'm going to take these in opposite order. Okay? First, we are being conformed into the image of His Son because of the death of Christ. You understand that? Because Christ died for you and on the cross took the wrath of God and forgave you of sin, because now you are Christ, God is at work in you to conform you into the image of His Son. If Jesus is the perfect embodiment of this psalm, that He helps those who are helpless, like He helped us on the cross, and now God is conforming you into that image, what is He making you into? A person who helps the helpless, just as Christ has done. Do you understand that? you understand the chain there? He's conforming you into the image of His Son, making you one who helps the helpless and who cares and who extends grace and mercy to those who are around you. But then second, what is coming on the back end? Well, in verse 28, he says that God is working all things together for your good because of Christ. Which means that all of the blessings of this psalm are now coming to you because God, conforming you into the image of Christ, is now giving you the blessings that result from your being conformed into His image. How's that for generosity? You can't out-generous God. You can't out-mercy and out-grace Him. You can only follow in His footsteps, which is exactly what He's saying here. Because of what Christ has done, He has secured now the blessing of this psalm to all those who would be considered His children. So because of Christ, God is growing your capacity for grace and mercy to others. And as He does... He is increasing the blessing of grace that you receive when you need it most. So then, the application for this psalm is really simple. It's just a question. And I've asked it several times. What kind of person are you becoming? What kind of person are you becoming? Ask your children. Ask your spouse. Ask the Christians in the church around you, what kind of person am I becoming? Am I known to others 
as a generous, loving, caring, compassionate person? Am I known to those who know me best as a person who is growing in the grace of Christ? Not who's perfect, not who's already attained it, I'm not saying there's not fault, I'm not saying there's not sins. I'm saying, what would people who know you best, Christians around you, describe you as? They describe you as a person who's growing in grace, who's growing in compassion and mercy. Or would they describe you as one who, having hit rock bottom, became bitter and angry, contentious, filled with strife and gossip and slander? Which is it? What kind of person are you becoming? See, everyone likes to receive the grace. But it's a whole other thing to extend it. What God is making us into as a people, as a church body, are people who extend it to others, who always look for a reason to be compassionate and merciful. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love...